Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckbell. I'm your host. And our guest today is Jessica Velezquez. She is Managing Partner and CEO of Indiva Advisors. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, some of the intricacies of setting up and running cannabis-based businesses. We're going to talk about 280E. We're going to talk about general tax matters. Uh, we're talking about investors, probably, both finding and finding investors as well as uh, people looking for places to put their money and uh, talk a little about what's going on in the cannabis space. Jessica, welcome to the program. Bruce, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I always like to start with uh, guests just giving a little bit of the background. What was your kind of professional story and, and how did you get into cannabis? Yeah, a, a good start off. I've been doing this for about 18 years now. I started my career in big four public accounting. So PwC, EY, then left that after a few years and moved over into industry to run several corporate tax departments. Um, so I have sort of that benefit of knowing uh, what it is to be the auditor and then knowing what it is to be audited. Uh, <laughs> the or and the id. You've been on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Because it's it's different perspective from both sides. Yeah. So I did that for a few years. And my last corporate gig as corporate tax director of a publicly traded multinational gaming manufacturer, uh, they got acquired. It took a hiatus. I really was trying to see what my next move was, uh, really the old age question of what do I want to be when I grow up? Yeah. <laughs> and this was back in 2013. So yeah. around that time, cannabis was starting to hit mainstream media. Yeah. And, you know, Colorado and Washington went recreational in 2014. And 
I just really started doing a lot of reading around the subject matter. I've always been a proponent for the industry, the movement of progression and certainly Mm -hmm. decriminalization. Um, I come from that aspect. And so it was like kind of the the crossroads of this passion for supporting the industry and then also this gap that I saw of true qualified professionals in the space. I think at the time when I was doing my research, it was a lot of sole practitioners, a lot of small mom and pop shops servicing Mm -hmm. the industry, uh, but not real technical, you know, what I would say, technical experts uh, really helping folks on the ground. So that's really how I came to be in cannabis. And I've been loving it ever since. The firm was born in April of 2016. So Mm -hmm. we're coming up on our three-year anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you so much. And we're just heads down doing what we do best, accounting, tax, and advisory services for the industry. Yeah, awesome. So we've talked a little bit about on the program in previous episodes about, you know, kind of 280E and some of the factors or considerations when it comes to doing running cannabis-based businesses. But for the for people that are kind of new to the series or, or uh, haven't gotten into it before, give, give us just a, a kind of high level, what is the issue, right? So we've got this sort of federal law, state law conundrum that we're in. How does it impact kind of accounting, uh, fiscal management, of a cannabis-based business. Give us some ground groundwork here. Absolutely. I mean, Bruce, as you know, um, it's federally illegal as of today. So cannabis is still on the Controlled Substances Act. And again, since 14, really, all of these states have come on board and legalized it at the state level, both for medicinal and adult use. So as you said, this conundrum uh, between state and fed right now poses an issue on quite frankly, both the accounting and the income tax side. The accounting side from the respect of lack of access to banking, as we all know, they don't want to bank the cannabis industry. So that really provides challenges on just the fundamentals of running a business. I mean, lack of banking means a whole lot of cash. And we've just not dealt with this type of cash for many, many years since the introduction of credit cards and uh, debit cards and et cetera. I mean, it's funny. Um, It used to be that way, right? I mean, businesses just dealt with cash. <laughs> yeah, that was, and, and now, and now, now it's like I, I don't even carry change anymore. I mean, it's like it's it's uh, it's really changing. So it's almost this kind of anachronistic. Like we're having to go back. Businesses are having to go back and say, "Oh yeah, what do I do? I need vaults. I need security. I need like bags that hold money." <laughs> Absolutely, and yeah. armed guards to carry yeah. all that cash. And I need to now set up an appointment with my local IRS office so that I can go make a tax payment. This is the I mean, fascinating one. Yeah, actually like making a tax payment. It's federally illegal, but yet they will take tax. I mean they'll they'll accept the tax, but it's got to be in cash because you can't you can't do electronic transfers. Exactly. They don't have access to banking. Yeah. And then again, sort of further penalized even by by that most, you know, over 10,000 typically must be ACH or wires or some sort of bank transaction. No one's really trying to take that amount of cash. Uh, So again, just all of these issues from just the basic fundamentals of being able to run a a legitimate business. And then now we move over to the tax side, um, to this application of IRS code section 280E. So maybe to give you some background on that, 
280E was implemented in 1982. It was a cocaine drug dealer that submitted his income tax return with all of his necessary and ordinary business deductions, just like any other business, right? His rent, his payroll, his car allowance, uh, meals, etc. And when the IRS got it, I mean, there was this real fundamental issue of... Okay, what what do we do? Do do we allow illegal operators to operate like their legal counterparts? Yeah. And so, because of that, 280E was born again out of that case. Uh-huh. And now here we are, you know, thirty plus years later. Well, and 280 uh, basically 280E said you can't. <laughs> yeah, said, you're exactly. not allowed. Like if you're if you're operating in an illegal or a business that deals with a federally illegal <laughs> substance uh, or business that you cannot deduct those things as legitimate business expenses. That is correct. I mean, in a nutshell, what 280E says is that you're only allowed to deduct your cost of goods sold. Yeah. So so let's think about that sort of in the context of this cannabis businesses. If you're a retail shop, you're literally only allowed to deduct the cannabis that you purchase that you put on shelves for customers to buy, right? So you're not allowed to deduct your payroll. You're not allowed to deduct the rent. You're not allowed to deduct the marketing cost, which is a standard course for every other business yeah. in, in America here. So well, you pay tax uh, on profits. I mean, the, the way the tax code is set up is that you're paying tax on the end profit that you've made at a business. So you take all of your costs, you deduct all your expenses, you're left with the profit, you take your your percentage on that. They're basically saying, well, no, the only <laughs> the only thing you do is take out your cost of goods. All of your other operating expenses, basically, you have to pay for out of your profit after you pay tax on it. You got it. Yeah. I mean, that is essentially <laughs> it. A rudimentary example is I made $100. I bought you know $50 of cannabis product to make that $100. And I spent another $40 on rent, payroll, etc. My net profit is $10. In a traditional business, you would pay tax on that $10. In this cannabis business, you would pay tax on the $50. Yeah. The 100 minus the 50 of the cost of goods sold. Which, which could be greater than the $10 you had left over. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can it's be underwater clearly, quickly. Yeah, clearly in this example, that's exactly the case, right? It's more than the $10 that you do have left over. So now you're having to come out of pocket to pay the tax man. Yeah. yeah. So definitely challenges uh, for operators currently in the industry. Yeah. Uh, again, both on the accounting, just the very basic fundamentals of being able to operate a standard business and then on the tax side uh, with this burden of overtaxation. Yeah. Is, is really what it is. Yeah. Now, so, but yet there's uh, a thriving cannabis market in many states. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess on the kind of expenses side, I mean, the, the, the implication or the kind of logic is, is that, well, there must be so profitable that they can afford to not have to deduct those expenses. I mean, is that basically what's driving this industry right now is that they can they can do it despite the fact they're being double or overly taxated? I mean, there are significant margins and, and certainly operators that are running lean mm-hmm. um, and really watching every dollar spent. You know, they're, they're making money. There's no question about that. There's operators, however, that are, are really not profitable. Yeah. They're they're really just kind of uh, 
going as as they go with the intent, I think, to sell their business and make their their money on the back end or uh, really sort of ride this wave right yeah, now wave. with the legislative action in you know, at Capitol Hill. Yeah. And there's a lot of discussion right now. There's a lot of movement. You know, we now have a split house. I mean, so again, there is quite a bit of buzz on Capitol Hill around cannabis. And so who knows, we may see uh, federal decriminalization sooner than we think. Yeah, I think everyone in the industry is kind of waiting with bated breath on, on what's going to happen with, with federal law. So that's kind of the the uh, I guess, uh, accounting profit side is like how this affects your, you know, how you, how you count expenses, how you count profit, how you, what you pay tax on. Are there any, I guess, maybe point of clarification or point of detail on this? How do you determine whether or not you are going to fall under 280E rules? Like what's the guiding principle or what, it, what is it that, that causes that to come into full force and effect? Yeah, I would say the guiding principle that really puts you into a 280E sort of perspective is if you're plant touching. Um, yeah. So from an operator standpoint, typically these are the licensees, right? A dispensary, a production or manufacturing facility or a cultivation facility. You know, if you're touching the plant, you are quote unquote trafficking as defined by IRS code section 280E. Yeah. Okay. So again, that's sort of that term moment. So I'll give you a couple of edge cases and, and see where this falls. So if I'm uh, say like a testing facility. So if I'm I'm someone who takes your product and I help you figure out, you know, what is your percentage of THC and C B D and terpenes and all this stuff, like I'm touching the plant, but is my company gonna fall under 280? That's a great question. Yeah. And, and that is sort of the million dollar question as it relates to labs and distribution. Yeah. Some states, really all states require lab testing. Some states require distribution licensees to actually move the product. And so those two specific licensees I think are are still sort of TBD. One yeah. could argue that they're really just a service provider. Yeah. They're mandated by the state. You, yeah. you cannot operate without them. And so they're not quote unquote trafficking. They're really like another service provider, if you will, yeah. to the plant touching operations so that they can get that product on the shelves. Yeah. So I think we're we're still kind of waiting to find the answer to that. Yeah. All of the tax court key that have been published or you know brought to conclusion in the last two years uh, have been mainly around dispensaries. So we've yet to really see the guidance from an IRS perspective on cultivation and production and sort of what yeah. uh, the appetite for cost of goods sold allocation is there and application of, of another code section, uh, 471, uh, okay. which is the overarching principles on how we compute cost of goods sold. Okay. So, so again, still yet to see anything come really substantive from that aspect and or the labs and distribution. Yeah licenses. Yes, because I see, I mean, it's, you know, when we talk about the cannabis business, I think a lot of people think about the yeah, the cultivators, the the processors, the distributors, the dispensaries, but there's a huge market in and around the cannabis space of, you know, everything from consultants to lab to suppliers, you know, there's lots and lots of services and, you know, this, this kind of nebulous or potentially uncertain area and how these companies are going to be treated makes it risky. It makes it 
I mean, you know, in, in the risk is opportunity, <laughs> but, but it is part it's of always. the nature of, of being in this cannabis space is you have to be able to deal with a certain, a certain amount of uncertainty, which is, which is tough. So I think that, that gives us a good sense of, well, I guess, in terms of some of the legislation and are there state by state twist to all this? I mean, I, this is all kind of federal, like how you do your federal returns and uh, calculation of federal income or federal tax. You know, as a cannabis operator on a state by state level, what are the things that I need to kind of think about or understand, you know, when it comes to operating my business and, and state taxation? Yeah, great question. So on the state level, uh, you know, maybe picking up from the income tax perspective, some states have allowed for uh, sort of this pullback of 280E, meaning they do allow you to deduct yeah. uh, payroll and uh, rent and everything else. So they don't apply 280E. An example of that is California. Um, And so again, they understand that it is a business, a viable business in their state. And so as such, they do not follow 280E and do allow uh, for those expenses to be deducted. I think further on sort of in the state or local taxes that operators should be aware of is all of the excise taxes that come about when you're operating a cannabis business. And so excise taxes, meaning, so for example, here in Nevada, there is an excise tax once the product comes out of cultivation. Okay. So as soon as the flower leaves the cultivation and goes into production or retail, it is taxed. There's a 15% tax at that point. And then there is another excise tax at the point of sale. So the end consumer is paying another 10% excise tax in addition to sales tax on the end product. So you're paying, so, so this is, so there, it's a 10, 10% excise tax and then whatever your state sales tax would be correct. also gets added to that, that as well. And who, how does collection work on that? So as a, as a grower, am I, I'm paying the excise tax when it goes to the, to the processor or to the retail. How do I pay that tax? Is this I'm paying this on a monthly basis, quarterly basis? Like, what is how does that work logistically uh, for companies? Sure, here in Nevada, it's monthly. Uh, okay. So every month, uh, you're filing an excise tax report. Uh, very similar in other states. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a monthly excise tax reporting where you tell the state this is how much flour I sold. Uh, the states are using some sort of fair market value approach to the amount of weight. And so that times the weight that came out of the cultivation facility is what you're paying. And then that gets remitted uh, again to the state. Oh, I got it. So I pay. So if the state's saying, you know, it's X amount, we're going to call the market rate X amount per pound. I'm not I'm not literally paying a tax on the on what I sold it for. I'm paying a tax on the volume I produced at the at the market rate. rate. Got it. And how do they and how do they do that? Do they adjust? I mean, do they have a review, a review board or something that sets the market rate every month? You got it. Yeah. yeah, not every month. It's looked at upon every six months right now in Nevada. Again, it's a, it's still a fairly new market, yeah. Bruce, right? Yeah. We Nevada just went adult use. When was it? Summer of 2017. So yeah. we're coming up on our two-year anniversary this summer. Yeah. And I think the way the regulators operate is they're looking for data points, right? So as they get more data points, they're reassessing all of that information and making sure that they're, they're in line with 
with what the market is doing. Yeah, such a dynamic market. I mean, it's like not only is the is the commercial side, you know, changing, but the regulatory side, the state side, I mean, everything is everything is just kind of in flux. <laughs> yeah. It's a brand new industry, Bruce. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, is there's no playbook, not for yeah. the regulators, not for the operators, and to some degree, not for us as the service providers, right? We're all yeah. kind of learning as as we go. And, and I think the key really is working together in all three of those components, right? With yeah. regulators, with operators to really understand the, the pain points and sort of where we need to take this industry yeah. as we're is that working? I mean, I, do you find do you find that that that's uh, you know people are collaborating? <laughs> How's it going? I actually do. I, yeah. I got to tell you, in my experience, anyways, over the last four years, I, I have found it to be very collaborative. Yeah. I, I think it's probably one of the new experiences I've had in my profession. And I've been doing this for eighteen years. Yeah. I come from heavy regulated industries like gaming. I yeah. was working in gaming for many many years, and so there it's like. Well, well, no, this is the rule. You know, the gaming control board pushes down the rule yeah. and that's what the rule is. And you follow it and, and you apply, a, you know, accounting and audit procedures to those rules. Yeah. This is different in that they were having conversations about what should the rules be? <laughs> we're not really sure. Yeah. <laughs> so getting opinions and feedback from, again, operators and other constituents in the industry is what's making, I think, successful, certainly in, in Nevada. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had some great success here. Our state has seen a lot of activity over the last 12 months, you know, from outside uh, foreign dollars coming yeah. into our market uh, from an investment standpoint, a lot of M&A activity just within our borders, outside brands and uh, folks trying to get into that, this Nevada market. Yeah. So let's talk about it a little bit because I think that's the whole other kind of interesting dynamic of the cannabis space right now is the investment activity. And yeah, I think on one hand, there's this kind of idea or, or, you know, general feeling like there's, we're floating in money, like every, you know, the green rush. And, you know, if, if you've got a cannabis business idea, you know, you just, you'll have people throwing money at you. You know, A, I guess, is that really the case from, <laughs> from what you've seen? And B, how is this investment space different than, say, you know, investing in a tech startup? I mean, why, you know, what is the, what is the uniqueness about cannabis investments and being a cannabis investor or a company that gets money? Yeah, I think uh, the industry is, again, different from an investment standpoint in that, um, you know, how's best to say this, but it's kind of like the shiny new thing, right? You know, the dot-com era had had its time. You know, tech, I think, also had its time. Like, everything kind of comes in waves. And so here it is. It really is literally the green rush wave, yeah. right? It's all the news. And so I think it's more of, hey, this is really interesting and I want to know more about it. No different than I think Bitcoin last year or yeah. two years ago, right? Uh, you know, cryptocurrency was all the buzz. And so it, it got a lot of investment dollars. I think cannabis is no different. It's, it's what's in the news. It's what's in the spotlight. It's getting a lot of attention and people just don't want to feel like they're missing out. Yeah. Maybe said another way. Why? I'm not sure that it's necessarily for every investor, though. 
I think from an investor standpoint, if you're getting into this industry thinking that you're just going to make, you know, millions on the money that you're investing, I'm not sure that that's an appropriate way to approach this. It's still very risky. These are startup companies. You know, the failure rates are still pretty high. Mm -hmm. The cost of operating a cannabis operation is high. We just talked about the tax implications of a cannabis operation. And so again, most investors are not aware of that. They don't know what 280E is. They can't imagine businesses dealing in this kind of volume of cash where where things can happen with Mm. with cash. There's no no good controls there. So I think for any investor, it's really understanding what you're getting into, having a good understanding of these accounting and tax issues that we certainly talked about earlier, um, and the risk appetite. What is your risk appetite? And understanding that, no, the money's not going to be coming in in six months or a year or two. Typically, you know, the payouts are upon sale or merger or acquisition. Yeah, some kind of transaction. So I think that, you know, on one hand... Yeah, I mean, just just like any like any risky early stage investment, you know, there's a risk component, and you know, good investors. One of the reasons they're good investors is they can they can calculate that risk and they can you know know what that risk is and plan or you know invest accordingly. But some of these other factors, I think, are fascinating. I mean, it's like a you know that it's kind of the unknown unknowns. <laughs> like, you know, exactly. it's the like I like I know that I don't know exactly when the return period is going to be. I know that there's always a chance that something's going to fail. But this whole thing of oh wow, I hadn't thought of the fact that there's going to be so much cash. I've never dealt with a business that had that risk before, so I don't even know how to factor that into my you know to my calculation. What are some of the other things that, from an investor point of view, get kind of sticky? Either because I mean, I, I'm curious if there are situations where the federal illegality of this business kind of taints portfolios or ends up, you know, being uh, impacting investors in other ways that they hadn't either thought of in the beginning or they, they end up having to manage differently because of the, 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 the federal aspect of it. I mean, do these things come up for investors? Or do investors, you know, think about, oh, well, yeah, I'd love to invest in this, but if I do this and then I'm risking other businesses or I'm going to, like, it's going to cause me problems in some way. Yeah, you sort of hit the nail on the head. I, I recently had a um, for a client where they are doing distributions uh, to their investors in cash. <laughs> you know, the investor lives across the country. Yeah, um, we can't just yeah, we can't just go deposit that at the local bank. You know, at their now, bank the without investor? raising question. But the, if the investor gets to do distribution, how does that? Are they now in that same situation? <laughs> they are in that situation. So I if mean, they deposit that again. cash, if they deposit that cash, now they are they have proceeds from an illegal business. Yeah, technically, yes, yeah. Oh, and God. and technically yeah. they can have their account shut down. I mean, yeah. so this is like a real thing. This is exactly what what we're talking about here. Yeah. So now it's time to collect the money in cash. You know, how do we do this? What what's the workaround and what's the plan? here. Right. And now I do have a, a, there is an investor that's you know, asking himself, like, what, what am I going to do with this? Yeah. And, well, and, and, I, I guess you set up different vehicles. I mean, I, I, I mean, not, not that I'm, I want to have you give tax <laughs> advice or, you know, strategy advice or something on this, but yeah, I can see it just, it does have this kind of ripple ripple effect this, you know, this derivative questions around, you know, risk and controls and things like that. And so do you think how are people or who do you see kind of making good, smart investments 
in the cannabis space or, or you know, how are they doing it? You know, when, when you look at a, a sophisticated or a, a well-structured, you know, cannabis business investor, what are they doing that's different than, than other folks? I would say that the successful ones that I've seen so far are, are you know, investing in good brands. Yeah. They're investing in organizations that have a really great C-suite, right, or management teams. Um, they're both cannabis savvy and business savvy. They bring a mix of both to their operations. Yep. And they tend to have a really positive culture uh, within their organization. I mean, I think those are all things that are pretty standard from an investor vetting perspective. You know, when you're looking at any investment, what do you look for? Yeah, you're looking for, you know, X amount of EBITDA. You're looking for, you know, what your rate of return is going to be. You're looking for growth potential within that opportunity. Uh, but some of these other factors as to the actual operations, right? Again, the management team, culture, and, and then who do you have on your bench and with what skill sets, right, to really drive this business to the next level. Yeah. Those tend to be the best investments. And again, it is a little bit the same as you would view uh, any non-cannabis investment. You know, those are yeah. the same kind of questions. What I see is investors, again, trying to rush in and, you know, grab what they can and take advantage of, again, quote unquote, the gold rush or the green rush, excuse me. But they're not really asking those questions. They're not really asking, you know, who's in charge of the finance department? Who's the CFO or the controller? What are some of these controls around cash? Let me see the tax return for last year. I want to know what the 280E implication was. Yeah. You know, so those kind of questions are not being asked. And then what we see is a year later, two years later, now they are asking, hey, where's <laughs> my money? Yeah, exactly. How is this investment going? <laughs> The party uh, that uh, it's the, the lights are on, and I'm, I'm not want to figure out like, wait, wait, what do we do? <laughs> exactly. Hey, I got this K one. What yeah. do you mean we had a a loss, but I have to pay tax? Yeah, exactly. This makes no sense oh, to me. No, it's always the rude awakening. <laughs> yeah. So it's those things that I think are so important that an investor really understand uh, before just diving in. Yeah. And then even from the uh, operators side, you know, maybe a few tidbits there is they're looking for investors, right? You mentioned that, Bruce. It's yeah. it's kind of both sides of the coin. You know, from an operator perspective, not all money is the same. Yeah. You know, not everyone is the appropriate investor for you. I think from an operator, they have this vision of of what that company, their company is to be and, uh, you know, what product lines, the culture, etc., and I also find that they'll bring in investors because they need the cash flow to continue to operate and grow their, their business or expand. Uh, but then it's not a meeting of the minds. They have different interest in the vision for the company. And sometimes the investors just want to sell. Yeah, They don't want to keep it. And, and so now you have an operator that's potentially no longer majority shareholder yeah. or majority owner. And, and they really don't have any say anymore. Yeah. to those kind of decisions. We see that all the time and people going out and raising money and they don't realize the, the obligation and the treadmill it's going to put them on. Uh, and they got to think hard and long before 
really doing that. And, and the whole idea of, um, you know, there's money and there's smart money and it's kind of figuring out what else, what else are you getting from that relationship other than just the cash, you know, and a lot of certainly in early stage rounds, it's much about the, the people you're bringing on as the cash that they're, they're bringing. So absolutely. So I this mean, has been good. We're going to, we're going to hit time here. We could spend probably several hours going through all the details and we, we could do more episodes later, but this has been really helpful. Actually, I've learned a little bit myself. So Jessica, thanks for being on the program. If people want to find out more about you, about the firm, what's the best way to get a hold of you and get more information? Absolutely, Bruce. Again, it's been my pleasure to be on here. Folks can find us at uh, our website, www.indivaadvisors.com. Uh, we're all over social media under Indiva Advisors. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and LinkedIn. It's been a pleasure. I will make sure that all those links are in the show notes. And again, thanks for the time. This has been great. Yeah, likewise, Bruce. Thank you. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.